a woman who didn't care about politics, never voted, got contacted relationally, suddenly started building relational lists herself, eventually started doing doors for their organization and, and, and other activism, and then basically went from six months from not caring to running for city council herself. And those types of stories are, are pretty common. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Mike Fole. He is executive director at the Organizing Empowerment Project, a nonprofit that helps organizations promote relational organizing by providing free software tools, funding, and training. Mike has been part of pioneering the recent upsurge in relational organizing, creating a sizable network of organizations working to build and expand their activist bases and organizational reach. They have developed software now called the Empower App to help these organizations. Mike and I had a good conversation about how his career developed in this direction, how he has built the Organizing Empowerment Project, and where they're headed going forward. For those interested in the intersection of technology, entrepreneurship, and progressive organizing, this is a great example. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Mike Fole of the Organizing Empowerment Project. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Mike, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. So I'm Mike Fole. I'm executive director at Organizing Empowerment Project, and we're a nonprofit that helps organizations uh, promote relational organizing in various forms. Uh, tell me a little more about your path to that. So where did you grow up? Where'd you go to school? What'd you study? Take me through the beginning of your career. Yeah, uh, I actually uh, went to school at, uh, at Madison, Wisconsin, UW-Madison, um, started off as an education major, had a, a good friend trick me into going to a college Dems meeting and got sucked in uh, very quickly. It, there's a thing that we do in Wisconsin, it's kind of like Wellstone called Democratic Leadership Institute, and uh, it kind of helps train college and young activists how to work on campaigns. And I fell in love with it instantly and got sucked into presidential campaigns and local elections and ended up working in the capital of Wisconsin for a while for the speaker and uh, did that for a while, worked on some campaigns, worked at America Votes as political director for about 10 years, and then rolled off that into doing uh, organizing empowerment and working in the relational organizing world. Okay. That was pretty good at glossing over a bunch of years and a bunch of... <laughs> I want to hear a little more about that, so I'm going to bother you about it. So where did you grow up? What well, did you also grow up in Wisconsin? No, I'm actually originally from Iowa. Yeah, so grew up grew up in Iowa, Iowa City. Yeah, and what kind of family? Was it a political family? 
Uh, not really. My mom uh, was a teacher. My dad was a doctor. Um, but my mom kind of instilled the democratic values uh, early on in my career of, you know, if you have the ability, you should help people and, and do what you can. Didn't realize early on I was getting indoctrinated into the political world. I would attend events and volunteer at things and things like that. But growing up in Iowa, I was uh, very spoiled because, you know, we have the Iowa caucuses. So I thought it was perfectly normal to have a presidential candidate just come to your high school and speak multiple times a year. It wasn't until I left Iowa I realized just how uh, how very spoiled I was in that process. We literally would have one candidate go to the rival high school across town, and I would say, ah, oh, I don't need to go to that one. I'll wait till he comes to, to my high school a couple months later, and, and that would obviously happen all the time. So you were pretty susceptible to that Democratic Party pitch in college because of that, huh? Yeah, yeah, pretty, <laughs> I'd, I'd say so. And, and you know, at, around the time, you know, like I said, I was doing education at the time. That was around the time of, um, you know, Bush and, and cutting education and things like that and started to realize, OK, if I want to do what I want to do here and I, and I see the importance of education, I might need to get involved in politics a little bit here to be able to change the way uh, that teachers are being asked to do their work and, and get funded to be able to do their work. And maybe I'll volunteer here on some campaigns for a little bit and uh, haven't really looked back since. And Madison's kind of a political place, a progressive town, a, a, a college town, right? Yeah, very much so. We have, uh, you know, the tradition of fighting Bob LaFollette here in Wisconsin, where, uh, you know, the the state that somehow both brought you uh, McCarthyism and also the concept of Social Security and open primaries and, and all these fun things. So kind of a, a land of extremes. But certainly in Madison, there's quite a bit of history of uh, activism and, and doing what you can to help people out. So you, you mentioned a bunch of campaigns, not so much by name, but by quick glancing blow. <laughs> Give me a little more detail on that. So did you get involved in the Kerry campaign in, in 04? Had you done stuff before that? What was the path? Yeah. So I got uh, involved in the Kerry campaign, actually in the Iowa caucuses. I went back home there and I and, uh, got involved there and kind of saw the, the ground build up there from, you know, being one of a dozen candidates in Iowa and the caucuses to um, going and working on the campaign then in Wisconsin and Southwest Wisconsin lacrosse area as a field organizer, got to, to see a, a campaign build up over months and, and a year to go from kind of nothing to being obviously having the national spotlight and a bunch of resources and attention. So worked on that for a while, then worked on some school board races in Milwaukee um, and some local legislative races and uh, where I ended up then finding a job in the Capitol working in uh, legislative office. And that was interesting because at the time I was split between two offices, one from kind of a rural Wisconsin area and one being in a very kind of more urban area. I got to see kind of both sides of politics in the state and, and the early stage of things becoming so bifurcated in Wisconsin, where, you know, in the morning I'd be answering messages and letters about, you know, gun control or things like that from from uh, a legislator who uh, believed in the right to bear arms to uh, in the afternoon with a legislator who believes in the rights to bear arms, but that there should be quite a few restrictions on who can get guns and, and how that works and uh, lots of issues where there would be um, kind of multiple angles on issues and getting a sense of what is it that voters in the state are looking for, depending on where they live. It's a, I mean, a pretty valuable education in government and politics, I assume. And uh, it sounds like something that kind of got into your blood. Is that right? Yeah, very much so. I mean, it definitely uh, helped you realize that there's multiple points of view and multiple um, valid ways to live um, and trying to get a sense of what's out there. 
but then also, you know, watching as the recalls hit in Wisconsin, if everybody kind of remembers that, right, where we had the recalls against Governor Walker and some of the Republican senators and Democratic senators. You used to be able to be a Democrat and live anywhere or a Republican and live anywhere. Uh, you had, you know, neighbors could be on different sides of the political spectrum and still be friends. Uh, but then around the time the recalls hit in Wisconsin, we saw um, quite a bit of transition where people suddenly kind of went to their sides and people either stopped talking about politics or uh, yelled quite a bit at each other about politics. But we kind of lost that civility that um, that kind of existed prior to all of that. And, and unfortunately, that's only solidified and gotten worse in Wisconsin over the years. Do you, who do you hold responsible for that? Do you, do you think that's a problem with the way Walker governed? Or do you think the roots are in the populace? How complicated is that? The wars in Wisconsin, the political wars, yeah, they were nationally followed, but they are not too dissimilar to things that are happening in a lot of states and nationally. A lot of it really comes down to, you know, where people are getting their their information from their media. You know, it used to be we all had one sort of point of truth, uh, right? We all would read the, the local newspapers or watch one of four or five news programs and things like that. And around the time of the recalls was when you saw tipping points where people could watch news all day long and never once see an opinion that's contrary to their own. Um, and especially certainly in the conservative media and the Fox News world where um, people were able just to be kind of fed misinformation. There was a lot of um, kind of testing out that theory that I think we then saw kind of the Tea Party and, and the push um, over the next couple of years after that recall nationally to recreate a lot of that information, which was, it was certainly the, the first election I was involved with where um, people completely disagreed on the fundamental facts that were were involved, right? And at the time, it was, you know, how were teachers being treated? How does the state government work? It went from, okay, here's here's what reality is. Let's decide what's the right path forward. And it changed to, we completely fundamentally disagree with what reality is. And and you know, the Fox News conservative echo chamber was able to pretty pretty uh, handily say, you know, this is what reality is, and therefore you need to vote for Republicans. Um, and I think we've seen that echoed over time through social media and through uh, news media and things like that, where there's a segment of the population that is never required to once confront reality in their day to day lives. And therefore, you know, the, uh, the decisions they make, whether it's rioting in the Capitol or how they vote or whether they should get vaccinated, kind of all stem from from that reality that they now live in. And there's only a few ways, um, relational organizing being one of them, which I know we'll talk about here today, but only a few ways to kind of be able to pierce that bubble and, and get um, get people to change their minds. It's a fairly distressing state of affairs, actually. <laughs> it really is. I mean, you mentioned along the way being political director, I think it was at America Votes. Um, yeah. Was that America Votes Wisconsin or nationally? Yes. Yeah. Yep, America Votes Wisconsin. Yep. How did you land there and where? what cycles was that and what were you up to there? Yeah, so that was around the recalls. Um, ended up uh, going from the hard side to the, to the independent expenditure side at America Votes. Ended up being the liaison there as all the recall chaos was happening about um, when election dates were moving around and election laws were changing and things like that because it was kind of an unprecedented time in Wisconsin. Um, so trying to help coordinate that and help with groups, um, that was definitely an interesting time to be able to, to turn around and see how the different side of the wall operates. As part of that, we actually were kind of testing out different things. So in addition to running TV ads and running field programs and things like that, um, one of the things that we started doing uh, was called relation organizing, which was 
um, helping get activists to build lists of friends and family that they would just talk to about the recall um, to kind of combat, like I was saying before, some of the misinformation that was out there or some of the confusion as to what was actually going on. So you had kind of teachers and, and local county officials and things like that being able to explain to friends and family and community members, hey, this is what the reality is. This is what this will actually mean for me. This is how it will cost me my health care or um, things like that if, if this recall and, and if the uh, the proposals that Governor Walker was trying to push at the time go through, this is how it's going to impact my life. Um, and we were able to kind of test some of those theories at that time. Why do you think Wisconsin, which had been such a progressive state historically, although close, tipped over to the Republican side and, and held it through those couple close, tight, unpleasant elections? Yeah. Um, it, so it was very, very close. Um, it really goes back to the 2010 election when there was obviously Republican landslides across the country. It was really only a couple hundred votes here and there in Wisconsin for some legislative districts that made the difference between Democrats uh, winning or losing in the state. Up until 2010, it was Wisconsin and Minnesota were actually pretty similar in their politics. Both were relatively blue, um, but in some ways centrist. And then in 2010, you can draw a pretty straight line where Republicans barely eked out uh, a win in some of the chambers um, just by a couple hundred votes here and there. And that ended up making all the difference in the world. Um, they were able to use the levers of power with redistricting and with some pretty um, draconian voting law changes and, and um, all the things that Governor Walker and the Republicans did at the time to really kind of squeeze out Democrats. And you can compare that to Minnesota, which uh, was able to hold on and they were able to combat some of the bad legislation coming through to limit voting rights and things like that. So there were cycles between 2010 and 2020 during those maps where Democrats won more votes uh, statewide in legislative uh, votes, you know, in some cases, 60% of people will have voted for the Democrat, but Republicans are able to hold on to seats because of redistricting or because of, you know, voting laws that made dramatically more efforts for a person of color or um, a college student to be able to vote in Wisconsin than um, if you were rural white uh, Wisconsinite. So certainly made it harder to be able to do that type of um, campaigning uh, in Wisconsin and still be able to have progressive values um, get through. What, what was your take on the 2016 presidential in Wisconsin? Yeah, that shocked a lot of people. I think obviously just like across the country that we ended up losing um, and, and going red for the first time in decades in Wisconsin. It was certainly disappointing and, and, and concerning for a lot of folks here and, and across the country. I don't think that it was anything more surprising that happened anywhere else in the country, right? I think people underestimated how much power Trumpism was able to have and how many people um, weren't able to see through the, the smoke screen that was kind of Trumpism. Um, and a lot of folks who didn't fully um, believe that that Democrats could lose to somebody like that. Um, so it was kind of a confluence of horrible events coming together to cause that outcome. Yeah. How does organizing empowerment projects start? Yeah. So like I said, uh, we kind of started this weird thing called relational organizing in, in Wisconsin coming out of those recalls. 
And I guess I, I should pause there and say, you know, we've kind of given it the name relational organizing and it came out of that. But to be clear, it's it's a concept that's existed for for decades prior to this. We kind of put a different spin on it, but it's it's been around for a while. So it's been around in the 19th century, I would say. Exactly. This is this is how the uh, suffragettes were able to get the right to vote. This is the civil rights movement, right? Going door to door and talking to people and talking to friends and family. That's nothing new. That's how politics used to work um, until there was kind of this. Um, we call it kind of the industrial field complex that's kind of sprung up over the last 20 or 30 years in progressive politics, right? Where um, it's all about getting as, as big numbers as possible. How many doors can we knock? How many doors can we knock? And not valuing what are those conversations actually mean, what what comes from those doors. Um, and to be clear, I think there's still a place for all of that. But the important thing is to make sure that we're doing this other type of organizing. Um, so we started doing this this crazy thing called relation organizing in Wisconsin during the recalls of, of like I said, getting activists to build lists of friends and family. Nobody really took it that seriously as, as important in the movement. And it was kind of just a side project that, that we were working on. And we you know, have been doing it for, for years ever since, just sort of a side project that uh, and then in 2016, worked with um, a group called For Our Future to do this relation organizing thing in Wisconsin, um, did a test with Independent Scientific Group Analyst Institute, which hopefully most of your listeners are aware of, um, that showed that that relation organizing was, in fact, the most impactful thing that they tested that cycle, which really was interesting because it went from, you know, literally having to defend, wait, why are you guys wasting time doing relation organizing here? Go back and do doors of phone calls. Uh, to, oh, this seems really impactful. Okay, how do we do it at scale? How do we do it right? So then in 2018, um, helped a bunch of uh, more groups across the country start doing relation organizing and and testing it out um, because the Analyst Institute test kind of started circulating around 2017 and then into 2018. People seemed to pay attention and say, well, let's, let's see what this actually is. So we did um, eight more tests that that cycle, uh, all of which showed that that wasn't a fluke. It was, in fact, the most impactful thing people can do. It's 10 times more effective than a lot of other techniques, um, especially in communities of color, transient populations, youth, um, people that tend not to be in the voter file. Uh, relation organizing is, is incredibly impactful, asking people to make lists of friends and family and contact them multiple times throughout the cycle, which anecdotally and, and intuitively makes sense, right, um, that you know, if somebody's not in the voter file, maybe somebody just moved to a new apartment last week, they're not going to be in the voter file, they're not going to be in consumer data lists, but your mom or your best friend knows how to get in touch with you. And so it's very impactful, especially in those communities to be able to reach out to, but even in communities that are in the, in the voter file, right, it's, it's still very impactful. And then similarly, if you think about the ways that you in your everyday life make decisions, um, you could see 100 ads on TV about what movie to go see. Uh, but if you have your friends say, hey, I saw that movie and it's horrible, you're probably going to listen to that friend over your TV ads. So intuitively, it makes sense that that would work just as well in politics. And that's certainly what all the research has borne out. So coming out of the 2018 election, all that research really showed that this worked. And then it was a matter of, great, what do we what do we do next with this information? Uh, so we got connected with a handful of funders in the progressive funding community and, and in the tech funding community. And um, really kind of spun up so that this wasn't just sort of a, a one-off, here's a, a technology solution to help manage uh, your relation organizing program, but really be able to create a soup to nuts support. 
And so that's kind of how Organizing Empowerment Project was born. We kind of went out and figured out what's holding groups back from being able to do this organizing and be able to do it well and at scale. And we kind of identified three barriers at that point. The first was training, um, that this was in some ways very old and in some ways very new technique, um, relational organizing. So um, we, we spun up a, a free training program where we have coaching staff that helps train executive directors and campaign managers on what is relational organizing, how do you set realistic goals and plans to be able to do this well and at scale. Uh, we train the field organizers on, great, how do you get volunteers to agree to do this? You know, what happens after you get your first 10% of volunteers who will crawl across broken glass and do whatever you tell them to do? Great, what's the next day look like? And so it's how do you hit scale and how do you keep growing from there? And then we also do, in some cases, trainings for activists, for groups that want to do that as well. Lots of times groups will kind of do that themselves, but if they want, they can kind of lean on us to be able to do that. The next barrier that we identified was the technology. We had kind of built this from uh, paper clips and toothpaste and duct tape together type of software uh, at the time that, um, you know, kind of worked, but no, it had nowhere near the investment and, and time needed to hit the scale that we would need to. Um, so we got connected with some great Bay Area programmers and, and funders out there interested in the tech that were able to help us invest and completely rewrite the tool um, by a lot better standards and, and be able to do a lot of cool new things on that, which we can dig into, but really tried to, to make that software better. And then we're able to provide it to groups for free. Because again, we identify, especially some of the smaller, medium-sized community of color focused organizations, they just can't afford year round software. And we really saw that this is the type of organizing that's really hard to, to spin up three weeks before election day, that we really need to um, help groups be doing this months, if not years before election day and be able to do this long term. So we wanted to make sure that the software to track and manage that could be free so that, so that they really didn't need to invest in that and they could invest in um, the people on the ground. Speaking of that, then that's the third barrier that we saw, which was especially in these groups that the research was showing was so impactful, these community of color focused organizations, youth focused organizations that were right on the ground, tended not to have the funding to be able to staff up and do this work year round. Um, so we created a grants program so that we can help provide grant funding so that they could hire a field organizer six months or 12 months earlier in the cycle than they otherwise would have um, to be able to start doing this organizing. And it ended up working. Uh, we came out of the 2020 cycle. We were the largest relational organizing coalition. We were able to train 77,000 people from over 1,000 organizations. Some of these organizations were able to get to really large scale. One of the, the groups that were really impressed by was actually just a, a local statewide organization in Minnesota called Isaiah. They're kind of a faith-based organization. They were talking to 160,000 people relationally using this, this metric, um, which had you know, huge impacts for them and huge impacts for the communities they were working in. Sounds like you've, just from how you're talking about it, that you found a good place for yourself. How is this a good fit for you? Sure. Um, I mean, like I said, you know, I'm very much interested in being able to, to help people and, and try and make a change, make a difference. When I started in politics, it was it was back kind of the industrial field complex days, right, where um, my goal was to get as many people making as many ID phone calls for the carry campaign uh, as possible or get as many door knocked as possible. And I was very, very uh, persuasive and good at that, if I may say so myself, of getting volunteers to, to put in the time and energy to just turn through lists and, and get as many IDs as possible. Um, but it, it felt certainly hollow at the time where, okay, great, I, I hit my goal. I got 350 uh, IDs uh, today. Did I really make a difference? Did I help change anybody's mind? And, you know, helping over time, writing the scripts for the phone calls or through the doors, 
um, you know, great. I put together the six bullet points that every volunteer needs to memorize and go to a door and shout at somebody those six bullet points in the hopes that maybe that persuades somebody. But again, knowing that that's not how the real world works. Like why, why would that possibly work that just memorizing six bullet points and, and repeating it at ad nauseum, you know, isn't going to change anybody's mind. I was lucky to be in the right place at the right time um, with the with the recalls and kind of see this relational organizing piece and and kind of being involved in in the team of folks. A lot of great people that were trying that. Again, I don't want to claim that I'm I'm the the only person doing this. There's a lot of really great people that are pulling this together, but being able to see anecdotally the power of that and then eventually through research the power of that. Um, it felt like there's definitely a way to be able to make a difference, not only in my community that I was working in, but then seeing the larger picture of, okay, this is something that actually can be used nationally. And then it became really rewarding when we got connected with all these kind of disparate groups across the country that have been trying to do this for years, but nobody kind of took it seriously, um, especially in these smaller community of color focused organizations where, I mean, let's be blunt, a lot of the white led funding groups that will come in and say, hey, that's cute that you're trying to do community organizing. We need you to go knock a million doors. So here's a bunch of money right before election day, uh, go knock doors. And then they disappear for two years after that. And that came, became just kind of very transactional. You, and I, you know, at America Votes and, and elsewhere, you can see um, how the impact that can have in some of these communities that just don't feel like they're being listened to. They, they feel like they're just being taken advantage of every two years. And so that has a horrible impact on society. Uh, because people just feel like they don't have a place in politics. And then certainly in democratic politics, that has a horrible impact where the base can often feel like they're getting taken for granted. Uh, and, and being able to come in and say, look, there's a, there's a new way to do this that still shows metrics. You know, you, you could, there's a way to show that you can do community organizing and, and make a difference. But now you can layer this relational organizing technology on top of it and, uh, and be able to show your funders, I do, in fact, have the reach that I'm claiming I have. Um, and that's certainly kind of from, from my point of view, from our point of view, rewarding, right? That we're letting the groups do the work they want to do and giving them the information and talking points they need to be able to show the funders at large that they're making a difference. And also, in some cases, it shows that they don't have the reach that they thought they had and, and they need to kind of recalibrate this organization. And we, we've helped groups do that as well. Um, so being able to really kind of come in and, and support these groups and listen to what they need uh, wherever we can is, is vital. Tell me more about building this as an organization. So you talked about having found funders. How hard was that? Who who ended up funding you? Um, how big did you get? How did you hire? Like what what did it take to pull this together organizationally? Well, I'll go back to the beginning. So back during the Wisconsin recalls, um, there was kind of a handful of us trying to pull this off. Uh, Kristen Kroll, uh, John Grable, Jonathan Levine. Um, uh, we have Christian, who's now on our team, Christian Faust, um, and, and a handful of groups on the ground. Um, Block, now in Wisconsin, Black Leaders Organizing Communities um, for our future. And we kind of struggled for a while to get anybody to take it seriously. Um, Analyst Institute then was able to kind of help validate, which was great. And then from there, we got connected with the funders. So um, I'd say kind of the, the father of relational organizing in our movement, to whatever extent that is, um, Nick Carter, um, who's who's been is uh, kind of a, a funder in the movement, has been looking for a while to try and find different ways to promote long-term capacity building work. So he was um, certainly instrumental in being able to connect with us. And then we got connected with various um, foundations in the movement and infrastructure funding groups. So America Votes helped fund this to get it off the ground. You know, um, some different foundations, Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Fund, things like that. Um, and then a bunch of individual donors in the Bay Area who were able to kind of contribute to help us on the, the technology side to be able to get off the ground. 
And then from there, it was a matter of trying to build a team. And so, you know, you, you relation organize yourself into a good team. It's really what that is. Um, but at the same time, and we've seen an emphasis of this in the uh, in the movement, obviously, over the last couple of years, trying to do that in an equitable way. Um, so, you know, if I'm based in Wisconsin, if we're only trying to staff up from there, you're going to be nothing but, you know, Midwestern rural white Wisconsinites trying to run a national program, you're not giving yourself the national vision that you need. Um, so trying to make sure that we're, you know, hiring and posting and doing equitable best practices, getting connected with um, lots of people all around the country from different age groups, different demographics, different religions. It was very hard to do that well, because staffing up the wrong way is fast and easy, but staffing up the right way is difficult, but certainly paid off. And so I'm really pleased at having a diverse team in every sense of the word, um, having a very diverse board as well of people from across the country, different backgrounds, different religions, different ethnicities has really helped us as we're building out the tool and building out the training to make sure that we're representing all of the groups so that we're not kind of coming in and being tone deaf to what some group on the ground needs. Um, Because every group is different, every state and community is different. So being able to um, have that infrastructure in place to be able to to make sure that we're um, meeting the groups where they are and where the needs are. And from there, it just kind of snowballs, right? Like the first couple groups you get supported, they really appreciate it. They help connect you to other groups. And suddenly you go from one group in a state to two dozen groups in a state that you're supporting and working with. And they're helping to build all of your knowledge base of, great, here's new training techniques, here's new needs, here's new technology needs, and being able to support that and then spill that over into new states as you roll into them. So it's been uh, a big struggle. Um, and I think you asked how uh, how big we got. So we ended up getting to, I think, 32 staff last cycle and then scaled down a little bit um, when the cycle was over. Now we're in the process of scaling back up. So if anybody's looking for uh, technology jobs or, or training jobs, please reach out. Uh, we're in the process of staffing up as well. Yeah, it, w- it was a ride. And then obviously when COVID hit, um, it really changed everything. So we had a lot of in-person trainings planned across the country because we had partnered with State Victory Fund and America Votes and State Voices and some other of the kind of infrastructure groups to help train organizations across the country on doing this. Um, and then pretty quickly, we had to switch from trying to do in-person trainings to Zoom trainings. So we went from having, you know, usually, you know, 40 or 50 people on a Zoom training at a time to suddenly 300 people on a training to thousands of people on a training at a time in given states as campaigns and organizations were pivoting from doing in-person doors and in-person events to, oh my God, how do we campaign in this environment of lockdowns? And relation organizing was kind of one of those techniques that um, thankfully you can do from your home, whether you're a field organizer or, or a volunteer and people had a lot more free time on their hands. So they were able to reach out to friends and family Um, So trying to pivot and learn what works in this new environment and support all of this new demand that we were having um, was definitely quite an adventure. But I'm so grateful we had a really strong team of folks that were able to uh, help us throughout the organization. You mentioned the on the tech front that you had sort of a a rough uh, beta product, maybe you would call it, and that you were able to get funding and talent to to bring it up to a higher level caliber, I guess. Tell me about like that process of building that and what it does. Yeah. So it's the double-edged sword, right? Of Because we were kind of a Midwestern group um, of just field political people that were kind of just building this tool on the fly. Um, I think it, it made us kind of unique in what we were trying to do. Um, you know, we've all worked on campaigns where some 
East Coast or West Coast Silicon Valley person comes up with a, a great tool and then goes out to try and sell it to the to the progressive community or campaigns. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, but it's sort of, hey, we built a tool. Let's see if we can figure out if there's a need for it. And here, this is kind of the inverse. We saw the need. Uh, we did what we could to build with the resources that we had. Um, our original tool, what it was called uh, Meyer VP List, um, which was good for what it was, but um, had lots of issues and wasn't at the scale that we were going to need to be able to pull off because we just didn't have the resources at the time to invest in it. Um, and so then getting connected with some of the, the great Bay Area tech people. So, um, you know, we had um, the UI person from Lyft was able to help us on some of our UI stuff. We had some of the people from Google, people from Apple, people from Microsoft um, who were able to either volunteer or take time off from their gigs to be able to, to come work with us for a couple months. Um, some were able to, to stick around uh, beyond that, which has been great. But having a lot of just really strong, high level people that, you know, at the time were very heavily invested in how do we defeat Trump? How do we, um, you know, make a difference? The fact that we were a nonprofit and, and getting very large and having a big impact made it easier to kind of attract some top level talent. And from there, it was trying to rebuild an airplane on the fly. Um, you know, it's hard enough to build from scratch, but also like, all right, there's people that are already using the tool, um, but we need to kind of strip it apart, rebuild from scratch, knowing all the new things that we've learned over the last you know eight years of research at that point. Um, so trying to keep the good, throw out the bad, add in all this new stuff. Um, it was exhilarating and lots of uh, late nights for all of us, but um, really appreciate the team uh, being able to pull that together. But it really ended up being um, a model that I, I hope you know any of your listeners or anybody in the progressive movement can try and use in the future. I mean, we, we got to something great because it was a mix of campaign staff and, and trainers that were seeing in the field what the need was, and they could report back to some incredibly high-powered uh, tech people to be able to figure out, great, here's how do we turn this into a technical solution. Here, Here's new features or workflows that we can have. And then being able to test things on the fly and figure out where where's that line between technological solutions and where is it always going to take a human. So we did a lot of research around like how much can we automate when it comes to organizing. And some pieces you can, you know, some things you can do in bulk. But we've done extensive research to show that you're always going to need field organizers to do some level of this outreach, that you're just not going to be able to replicate that by, you know, throwing in some AI or through some automation or, or like, oh, if we just text the whole world, run a bunch of digital ads, we'll be able to, to win. It really takes more than that. So being able to layer all that information um, that's from, from both directions, the purely technical people and the, the purely training political people, really allowed us to kind of see what the needs were in different environments. And I hope the structure is something that others start to recreate over time for other tools that come along. We've certainly seen high profile cases over the last four or five years of people investing only in the technology, but not in the training around it or in the infrastructure to make sure it's able to be maintained. And it just falls flat on its face. And, and that's usually not a fault of the tech. It's just if you don't have all of the pieces around it to support the tech, um, you know, the movement's going to suffer. And so, you know, I really hope that more and more groups are able to kind of replicate what, what we've done so that uh, everybody can be successful anytime a new piece of tech is rolled out. Um, I think you renamed it from my RVP list. Yeah. Yep. So we kind of renamed and rebranded re after we rebuilt the thing. So now um, the software is called Empower. Our organization is called the Organizing Empowerment Project or the Empower Project. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's newly, newly minted and, and is uh, very exciting and all the stuff we've been able to put into it over the last couple of years. Since I started this podcast back in some beginning of 2017, I've been interviewing a lot of the entrepreneurs that 
that built tech coming out of uh, the anti-Trump world and before. And some of them built relational organizing tools. I'm sure that you've tracked some of them being where you are, Outreach Circle and the Tuesday Company and what was called Outvote. And I just talked to somebody from who had built something called Blue Squad. I keep finding other ones. Um, you know, there was also what the, the Sanders campaign built. So this was in the air, as it often is with anything that gets built. How did you view that as a market? Because most of these other, not all, but most of these other ones were for-profit software entities. Their incentives are a little different than yours. They had different paths. A number of them have now been absorbed into larger software enterprises as a piece of the puzzle. Tell me about how you sort of have viewed that market over time and how you view it now. Yeah, so we, we used to be an army of one, like I said, where, where we existed and, and nobody else did. And it really was around the time that the research started coming out to show that it worked, that some of these other groups uh, kind of popped up. Um, yeah, and it, I think you hit the nail on the head that there's been kind of different incentives and different scales. Some of the ones you've mentioned have kind of since uh, gone under or been absorbed or things like that. And we're, we're still kicking along. I kind of see it as different tools for different jobs. Um, I'm kind of glad that there's there's kind of innovation in, in the space that's trying to figure out different ways to achieve different goals, different people kind of addressing it different ways. Obviously, I'm, I'm biased and think that our, our method and approach is, is the right way to go. And, and thus far, at least the scale we've been able to hit leads me to feel like we're, we're going about this the right way. Did you look at their applications? Did you, uh, you know, I don't know, when I was running a political software company, I was pretty... I paid attention to what the competition was doing and what features they, they had and who they were serving and, you know, what, what scale they were growing, things like that. Yeah. Well, and this also comes back to where I was uh, very pleased for some of the um, support we were, and advice I was able to get from some of the Bay Area programmers and, and teams that I was able to bring in there because it's certainly no different than any other, um, you know, new app launch or things like that. And, and it's trying to find that fine line, certainly keeping an eye on, on what other tech companies or, or training groups are doing in the space and figuring out, are they innovating in stuff we haven't thought of? And is there ways to kind of integrate that? Or are they going in a different direction than, than we want to go? Um, in which case, like, great for them, but we want to make sure we're supporting the the groups and style of organizing that, that we see um, as being beneficial as well. So it's, it's kind of trying to keep your, certainly your finger on the pulse, but also not losing your way and chasing uh, your tail a bunch, trying to figure out how do we we catch up or how do we go into a different direction and not lose sight of your overall strategic plan. And that's, that's one of the harder things I will say uh, in being involved in technology. And I'm sure you saw that as well, right? Is, you know, anytime a, a new tool or new group comes out with a, a new shiny feature, you kind of catch yourself and say like, okay, okay wait a minute, is, is that useful? Are people going to use it? Is that a, you know, a diversion um, and trying to figure out when is it time to, to take advantage of an opportunity and, and go in a new direction versus, okay, it looks like the market wants to go in another direction and try and figure that out. So there's definitely a, a trend in a lot of tech right now of trying to kind of become an all-in-one tool. Um, and that's certainly something that um, we've been hearing from our users and, and are trying to implement as well here. So, you know, I've been talking about relational a lot today, but also we have, you know, built-in canvassing stuff and, and bulk texting uh, features into the tool as well so that groups can still, um, you know, use kind of traditional organizing methods in addition to the relation organizing piece. And that's something that I think is uh, a newer trend now than where it was 10 years ago, where people kind of just, you know, use different tools for different jobs and that was it. Um, so that's certainly something that we're looking at and, and implementing um, over the last year as well. Have you tied it into 
voter file data? Yeah, yep. So we can connect to NGP Van and Target Smart and some of the other um, vendors and tools and things out there as well. Um, we see that as, imp- as an important piece and certainly something that a lot of groups want. But I will say that um, you have to do that in a smart way. Um, so again, the power of relational organizing is that it allows you to reach out to community uh, groups and, and people in the public that aren't currently registered. And so we've worked very hard to make sure that while the tool can connect to the voter file, it's not limited to it. And so ideally, it kind of wraps around that. So there's a way to, to track and outreach into people that aren't in the voter file, um, people who may be distrustful of technology, people who are distrustful of the government, but being able to um, still kind of track your progress in communicating to those groups. But where they are in the voter file, great, let's make connections, let's share targeting and, and data and IDs and stuff back and forth where it makes sense if a, if a group wants to. Um, and that's certainly something that we see as kind of an important approach to, to how a relational organizing works. How do you think about being organized as a nonprofit in the space versus being organized as a for-profit? For decades, I've seen people try both um, successfully and unsuccessfully, I guess. Some of the benefits of for-profit always seem to me that the incentives around making a good business often aligned with you know keeping customers happy and sometimes allowed you to raise a different kind of money um, to, to scale in a different way. And also there were some advantages in that you could combine, in a in a known way with other for-profit enterprises, like you saw with some of these relational organizing tools. Some of the disadvantages are, you know, you can raise different money for nonprofits. You have a different kind of, uh, face to the world where people don't have to be skeptical about your profit motive or, you know, uh, and you can combine with nonprofits. I don't think that one is a right way or a wrong way, but how, how do you see that difference and why did you choose this angle? Yeah, uh, I think you're right that you can really do it either way. For our goals and motivations, having it be a, a nonprofit really uh, was just the, the best straight path to what we wanted to do. So like I said, coming out of 2018, did great. We worked with all these big national groups. All the research showed it was super impactful. Groups uh, did a really good job. And then the groups that we saw that were most impactful said, hey, this is great. We'll see you again in two years. We can't afford to keep paying for software and keep keep uh, field staff on to keep doing this work. Um, and that just seemed like a, a travesty, to be honest, and kind of looking around the movement and seeing that's not going to get us where we need to go if only the really large white-led organizations can afford to do this type of work year-round and everybody else uh, kind of has to just sit and wait around that time, being able to get connected with funders to be able to say, great, let's do this year round. Let's see what that would actually look like, I think was certainly instrumental um, in being able to to make sure there's kind of long-term capacity uh, for this type of organizing. But again, I think it depends on the tool. If you're a phone bank tool or a paid canvas tool or things like that, um, being a for-profit that can be spun up, you know, somebody can use your tool for two months and turn it off, you know, that's great. But I think for what we're trying to do and, and the way that we see relational organizing as being important year round, being able to to provide this full full service support of the training and the technology to groups that can't otherwise afford it is, is important. And Wisconsin, I think, is a great example, right, where if we were purely for profit and groups had to hire their own staff with their own money, um, you know, we would have in the 2020 cycle probably had four, maybe five groups that could afford to do that and hit any type of meaningful scale as an organization. Because we were able to come into Wisconsin last cycle and say, look, we're free, we'll train you for free. Uh, we got all these funders that want to help fund your staff to uh, to be able to do this work. We worked with about 30 organizations. We were able to get very large in Wisconsin, talking to tens of thousands of voters. 
and uh, using the Analyst Institute math of, of impact, generated 10% of the win margin for, for Biden and Wisconsin last cycle. And I don't think you can hit that type of scale um, in, in what we were trying to do if you ignore all the smaller community groups. You know, the Hmong Women's Association in Wisconsin doesn't have, have a lot of funding. They're, they're wonderful people. There's nobody else that can be talking to their voters, right? They're the trusted messengers in their community, and we need to find a way to be able to support them. So being able to come in and say, like, hey, we can do all of this for you for free um, really is, uh, I think, important for the movement. How about with respect to staffing it? I mean, you sometimes with a for-profit, you have some advantages in hiring because you could give people a stake in the business. It sounds like you've managed to find high-level talent by investing them in the cause, which also happens on the other side. But has it been a challenge for you to find and retain full-time staff for the nonprofit? Yeah, great question. Um, So we've done both. So thankfully, our our fundraising has been pretty good. So we're able to actually pay pretty decent wages. We're never going to be able to pay people the half million dollars a year they could make in in the Bay Area, but at least we're able to be um, pretty pretty competitive to be able to still hire um, some higher level staff because we're a nonprofit and and because uh, we can kind of show that this supports the cause that people believe in. We're able to bring in some top level talent who have to be honest, already made their money elsewhere or uh, can take a couple years off from making quite a bit of money to make just decent amount of money and, and be able to still do this work um, and, and make a big difference and bring in some really high level people that no progressive for profit would ever be able to, to hire that level of and caliber of people. So I'm pleased at the staff we've been able to bring in. Um, and uh, again, we're continuing to hire. So if anybody out there is in the tech space or in the training space, please reach out. It's the world that we're in and we're, we're doing the best we can um, with the resources we have to build a really strong team that I feel um, is very competitive. Does it feel like the funding community is committed to supporting what you do well out into the future? Yeah, uh, I think so. Um, we're continuing to kind of grow our, our donor list, just like any any organization or any nonprofit. To be blunt, the fact that we're able to support so many different groups allows us to to reach out and fundraise in a bunch of different ways. Because there's funders that care about all the social justice work we do. There's groups that care people that care about the youth outreach, the environmental outreach. Um, so there's a bunch of different kind of funders and foundations willing to support our kind of administrative and, and training and tech costs, and then also get connected with the groups on the ground that are doing work in those areas and be able to say, great, you know, we're, we're running grant programs for, for people that are, you know, doing COVID outreach right now and, and being able to help support groups using relational organizing to do just that um, kind of makes it um makes it all kind of work out here so we can hit the scale that we need to and have the resources we need. But uh, that being said, we're obviously always trying to raise more funding, uh, just like any group that's never going to end. But certainly right now we feel um, we're certainly strong in the short term, medium term and long term to be able to do this for quite a while. On your website, there's a lot of partner organizations where you kind of list a lot of these groups that you've been involved with. And, and you know, it's it's got to be a pleasure to look down that list. But could you give me an example or two? If you're talking to someone who's running a group like this right now, who isn't, who hasn't adopted this software or your training or whatever, how have other groups changed by working with you and what have they been able to do? Certainly, yeah. Um, so when we kind of work with new groups, you, you know, over the last 10 years, like I said, this has really changed from us trying to convince organizations that they should do relational organizing to now it seems like the movement has agreed that relational organizing is, is worthwhile. Well, the question last cycle was, hey, it seemed to be impactful, but can it hit scale? 
And I think we answered that last cycle. We ended up talking to quite a few people in quite a few states relationally. We ended up, our coalition ended up being five times larger than the Biden campaign's relational program even. Um, when you kind of pull this together, you can actually get pretty big. So now the question is just, great, how do we just do this most efficiently? How do we kind of sustain it year round? So a lot of the conversations that we have with new organizations is uh, trying to get a sense of what their goals are. Our coaching staff kind of gets in with them, figures out what their goals are, figures out how do we wrap relational into that existing work. Um, groups that kind of see this as just an add-on project tend not to be very successful. The groups that say like, great, we can wrap this into our social media program, our door program, our phone program, and it's just kind of sprinkle it here and there and really kind of embed it everywhere uh, become very successful. And so we work with them to be able to pull that off. Um, and then getting helping them get buy-in throughout the organization because it doesn't work if you know the field organizers believe in it, but the executive directors don't, um, or vice versa. That's usually a, a fast track to falling flat on your face. But that's what the groups uh, certainly get out of it at the beginning is, is helping to get buy-in, helping to get interest. What we've seen um, groups also benefit from is activists love this type of work more than kind of your doors or phones or things like that, um, especially in some of these community organizations that have been trying to do this for decades and have been told it doesn't matter. And now you can go to somebody and say, hey, I know most of your friends haven't been on the voter file list we've been giving you. It turns out that you are the most impactful person in their lives. And if you can talk to these 10 friends at church or down in the neighborhood or, or whatever it is and get them to, to change their behavior, literally you're the only person that can make a difference here. And it's really empowering for their activists. And we've seen groups uh, take a lot of activists who go from not caring to caring. Um, there's an activist actually, so I mentioned before, Block, the Black Leaders Organizing Community in Milwaukee. Um, Love the story they had there, which was a, a, a woman who didn't care about politics, never voted, got contacted relationally, suddenly started you know, building relational lists herself, eventually started doing doors for their organization and, and, and other activism, and then basically went from six months from not caring to running for city council herself. Um, and those types of stories are, are pretty common where you can um, kind of bring in and activate your activists to care and be involved because as an organization, you're treating them instead of like cogs in a machine, you're treating them like their opinion, their activism actually matters and makes a difference. So we see a lot more kind of empowered organizations that keeps them coming back and uh, trying new things. I guess I had talked to Angela Lang at Block at one point. Yes. Is she still there? Is Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's she's, impressive a, she's an person. amazing leader. She's yeah. she's a lovely human being. Yeah. Did you uh, happen to look at what the other side, the Republican side, does with the relation organizing? Have you followed that? Usually, when I ask that question of people on our side, the answer is no. Like we just pay attention to only our side, and we're pretty oblivious. How about you? Yeah, I mean, we we kind of keep an eye out for it. They've had some of the different presidential campaigns have tried to include uh, some of this in their their presidential apps. Like when Ted Cruz was, Cruz was running, um, he had a little kind of relational component of talk to your friends and family and win a T-shirt or something like that. Um, it hasn't taken off all that much in the, in the formal sense that we've seen on the Republican side. To be blunt, they have outsourced it uh, as much as we don't want to uh, have to acknowledge it. But a lot of their relation organizing is happening through Russia uh, and their social media bots and Facebook and things like that, where people are um, kind of taking their lead there. And, and so they don't need to have their field organizers promoting it as much because they have an entire social network um, that's kind of promoting their ideas and, and their values to, to friends and family. You think Russia's running the relational program on the other side? That seems like a stretch. <laughs> well, I, I think not. It's formally. They have their churches and their, I mean, their groups. And uh, I mean, they're pretty active 
organizing as you found in Wisconsin, they sometimes do it fairly successfully. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, th- you know, they don't call it relation organizing as much. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they will have field staff involved. But I guess what I'm saying with like the Russia and social media bots and things like that, there there is already an industry in place trying to get your aunt to share anti-vax stuff on Facebook, right? Um, so there, there's there's a little bit of just different incentives there. But um, yeah, I, I, ex- I expect that the Republicans will continue to, to invest in that front just as Democrats are investing in that front. There is a, I think you noted, a move to sort of build full suites of tech, tech stacks for campaigns or other organizations. And uh, there's several of them out there. How do you see this evolving down the road with what you're providing? How is that going to fit into the tech that a campaign might or an organization might deploy? Yeah. Uh, so like I said, we certainly see that demand. And on our end, we've um, added that in over the last couple of years, right, to try and uh, support more things through the canvassing uh, programs and the, the bulk text programs and things like that that we've added into the relational tool itself. So do you think you'll just try to grow that out into more and more things? It's sometimes hard to balance between a focus and, uh, you know, trying to be all things to all people. Exactly. That right. Master of none, if it were right, that that if we try to become everything for everybody, we either need a, you know, $200 million budget uh, every year to, to hire all the engineers and training staff and all that. So it's, it's definitely a matter of trying to kind of pick your battles and understand your your organizations, your, your partners and client base as to what their needs are and figuring out how do you support that. Our view and our interest is how do we also integrate in all of this research we have on best practices, right? So, I mean, at this point, I think it's no surprise that, you know, for example, just running a bunch of auto calls for GOTV, you know, has zero impact. Um, same thing for just sending out a bulk text for GOTV has very minimal impact. So our bulk texting features and things like that are, are how do we integrate that where there's a little bit of demand, but also be able to support best practices. So again, like our bulk texting or canvassing is around, how do we um, kind of use this to drive people to then have relational conversations with friends and family or become a relational leader or become a door knocking leader or um, come into the office to, to lick envelopes or whatever it is that an organization wants is how do we kind of stay true to our core values of we want to be helping support organizations to do the impactful style of organizing and outreach and not necessarily, um, as one of our staff says, uh, you know, we don't want to give people a foot gun. Uh, we don't want to create a tool that just makes it easy for them to shoot themselves in the foot and, and fail. So um, that's definitely a, a trick that we're always trying to figure out is, is how do we find that right balance? What else should people know about relational organizing that isn't broadly known? What do you think are big misconceptions about it? What do you think are our best practices that you could kind of briefly explain to people? Yeah, um, so many misconceptions. So again, the, the first being this isn't new. Uh, again, community groups have been doing this for decades. Um, but I think the other misconceptions here is that you know it, it's hard or that it can't scale. I'd say just like any other tactic. Um, it takes energy, uh, you know, it takes focus. Um, but, you know, like I said, we've had groups hit monumental scales here in the, in the communities they're in, and it just takes a little bit of volunteer and, and field organizer investment and, and they can pull it off. So much of what we do is trying to train and support groups to, to pull that off. So I would say, you know, if, there, if there's a misconception out there, if the groups are hesitant, you know, reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you and figure out if, it's a, if it feels like a good fit for what you're trying to do. You know, here's the steps it'll take to get from here to there. Um, I think the biggest piece also is time. 
again, this is not something that you read the research and decide you're going to spin up three weeks before election day, um, that if you're doing this right, this is something you're doing year round election or not. And you're just kind of investing more time in it as election day gets closer so you can spin up and hit big scales. And then the other piece, I think, is also that you don't need to have some sort of magic script or, or a bunch of poll tested language to really figure out how to do this well. Uh, organizations and campaigns, they know they know what they need to be saying to their activists and their volunteers uh, and, and what motivates them. Uh, one of our biggest groups last cycle, it, it surprised me, but the, the issue that really kind of got them started was around trash collection, uh, believe it or not. And I, I thought they were insane, but our trainers had talked to them. And they said, no, this is going to work, Mike. I said, all right, we'll see. Uh, but it absolutely worked, which was I was in a, a community that um, I won't get into the details, but basically just the process of trash collection was just not what the community needed, um, the way that it was being collected. And, and there's um, some racial overtones and things like that that were uh, making it difficult. And they use relational organizing just to to reach out into the community, build up activists to uh, to enact change basically uh, locally. And it was so empowering for their activists that the group just shot up. Uh, as an organization, they were able to show big numbers. They were able to show their impact to funders. The activists suddenly felt incredibly empowered that they could make a difference. And then from there, they were able to pivot and talk about the other issues that the organization cared about. And obviously, eventually, um, you know, came to election time, be able to register people to vote and turn them out and, and have all the impact they wanted to have electorally. But there's so many groups out there that I think have similar stories and, and certainly in the relational space. If you kind of just meet people where they are, you talk to them about what matters to them, and then suddenly it's no longer difficult to get them to talk to their friends and family about a thing they already care about. And now it's just a matter of kind of putting a saddle on the bull and, and riding it as it takes off into the sunset of, of being able to hit the scale and scope that you're trying to hit. That sounds exciting. When you look at the elections coming up, 2022, 2024, in Wisconsin in particular, how do you think things play out? Yeah, uh, so I think Wisconsin now um, is is going to continue to be a razor tight race uh, no matter what, and that's been the case now for for twenty years. Um, I think that polling will continue to show that the governor's race will be tight uh, no matter what the national environment is, one way or the other. Uh, and that was the case when it was really strong den win years and really strong Republican years. Um, I think Governor Evers is is doing everything he can to to fight the good fight here and, and put up a, a strong campaign. So I'm hopeful that he'll be able to uh, pull it out, but it certainly needs uh, as much support um, in state and nationally. Everybody kind of pushing the same direction here to be able to to win and keep the bad guys at bay, um, and have the strong infrastructure to be able to be ready for uh, 2022 and 2024 um, and uh, presidential races and Senate races uh, beyond. So it's going to be. It's going to be tight here, but I think the groups on the ground uh, are, are willing to put in the, the effort and energy it'll take to win. Is there a question that I didn't ask that I should have asked you? Uh, yeah, I would just say, uh, how do people get involved in relational if they are interested in, in doing this type of work? Um, so again, I encourage anybody, feel free to come to our website, organizingpowerment.org. Um, come talk to us, and we'd be happy to uh, get you exactly what you need to um to get started and figure out if it's a good fit. And again, everything's free. So uh, there's no excuse not to do this type of work and add it into your campaign or, or the work you're trying to do here. Just reach on out and we'll be happy to support your work. Sounds like a pretty darn good offer. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Especially with training. I mean, boy, how can you say no to that? Uh, there you go. Well, Mike, it's been really an honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? No, I just really appreciate what you're doing here and thank you for your time. Thank you.
That was Mike Fole. Mike is at organizingempowermentproject.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.